0: Today's scripture reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I I am, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The word of the Lord. Well,
1: friends, uh, this is the last week of a brief sermon series we've been doing here at Res called Name, talking about names and naming in early scripture. And um, as I was thinking about names, I was actually thinking, uh, Matt talking about his mustache made me think about this in names. And it makes me sad to th- hear that you feel social pressure to remove that type of facial hair. Brent, too. You guys look great, and we haven't had a... Think about how much anti-facial hair bigotry there is in this country. We haven't had a president with facial hair since When? Teddy Roosevelt? I mean, my gosh, like, you can't get elected if you have facial hair. Why is that? Why? I don't know. I don't understand. Someone should just go go for it. And so, uh, but it uh, made me think of um, facial hair, mustaches, made me think of um, how names used to tell a story and say something about someone. And a guy who used to play for the, a Greek guy, Michael Appreciate this, who used to play for the Kansas City Royals, Mike Moustakas, which means Mike Mustache, Mike the Mustached one. And, and how names are these fascinating things, and especially English surnames, because they used to, like you used to get a name, sort of a last name was kind of a nickname. It either said something about where you were from, or what you lived by, or some physical feature of yourself. And so if you ever uh, uh, want to get down a, an internet rabbit hole, just look up English surnames and their meanings. And, and, and I, I did that this week for you, and so here are, here are some of my favorites. So the English last name Hand... Why you would be given that that last name? They would give it to someone who had a deformed hand. So that was why they would do it. Uh, Cooper, like Bradley Cooper. At some point, someone in his family made barrels. Uh, That was what they did. Mallory, the last name Mallory, was given to an unfortunate person. Odom, the last name Odin, given to someone who had done well by marrying a woman with a rich father. Rump, given to someone with a large behind. Squib, a sarcastic person. Uh, Todd, which was my grandma Irene's, that was, her, uh, that was her maiden name. Todd was given to someone who was thought to resemble a fox in some way. Uh, Longfellow, uh, given to a, a tall fellow. And last but not least, Uncle, uh, given to a man who was an uncle to someone. That was where they sort of ran out of creativity at that point, John Uncle. And so our names, especially our last names, at some point in the ancient past were rooted in in a story, a story that people told about our ancestors as they admired them or they made fun of them. And the storied nature of names, it it calls to mind a passage from uh, the Lord of the Rings when when the hobbits, Mary and, and Pippin, run into a giant talking and walking tree and they ask him his name. And at first he tells them that his name, he says, Treebeard, Treebeard will do. And then a couple of pages later, after learning the Hobbits' names, he says, for I am not going to tell you my name, not yet at any rate. A queer and half-knowing, half-humorous look came with a green flicker into his eyes. For one thing, it would take a long time. My name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story, a story. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to in my language. It is a lovely language, but it takes a very long time to say anything in it. Because we do not say anything in it unless it is worth taking a long time to say and to listen to. I love this image. My name is a story. My name is growing. And, 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 and real names tell you the story of the things they belong to. And so that's a fitting phrase to hold in our minds as we ponder our passage this morning, which is really one of the great passages in Scripture, as God meets Moses in the burning bush and reveals to him his name. So we're going to look at at four aspects of God's name asking these questions. First, what does the burning bush have to do with God's name? Second, what do the ancestors have to do with God's name? Third, what does God's name mean? And lastly, what does Jesus have to do with God's name? So what does the burning bush have to do with God's name? What do the ancestors have to do with God's name? What does God's name mean? And what does Jesus have to do with God's name? But before getting into that, just sort of set the stage. What is happening in the narrative at this point when we meet Moses? And so we're in the book of Exodus. And so at this point, the children of Israel have been in Egypt for 400 years, during which point um, they've flourished but been enslaved by Pharaoh And he sought to oppress them and control their population by killing all the firstborn Hebrew males. Moses was spared. His his mother put him in in the Nile River in a basket, and he was retrieved, drawn out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's household as an Egyptian. Now, when Moses was 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian taskmaster, uh, overseer, beating a Hebrew slave, and Moses killed that Egyptian and then the next day he saw a Hebrew uh, oppressing and beating another Hebrew, and Monish, Moses admonished him, saying, How can you do this to your brother, to your kinsman? And, and the Hebrew who was doing the beating snapped back at Moses. Who are you to judge me or? Are you gonna kill me? Like you did that Egyptian. And so Moses knew that word of his crime had spread, so he, he fled Egypt for the wilderness. He met a nice girl there and got married, settled down, started a family. And so when we meet him in Exodus 3, he is watching over the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, just like he had the past 40 years. And so Moses spent the first 40 years of his life as a prince, sort of a prince of Egypt, and and then the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd. And it was just another day when all of the sudden something caught his eye. There was this bush that was on fire, and and Moses was a shepherd. He'd been doing that for, for 40 years, and so he'd seen this kind of thing before. Dry scrub brushes were known to catch fire every now and then in the hot sun and dry desert heat, and this burning bush was different because instead of the fire quickly consuming it, the bush just kept burning and burning and burning with no sign that the flames were going to extinguish. And so Moses turns aside, he notices, and he goes in for a closer look, at which point the voice of God speaks to him from the bush. Moses. Moses. Now, this brings us to our first question. What does the burning bush have to do with the name of God? I mean, this is a really odd thing, isn't it? God in a burning shrub. Why couldn't God have appeared to Moses like the three visitors, as he did with Abraham, or like a wrestler, as he did with Jacob? What does this burning bush teach us about God? Some incredibly profound things when we stop and think about it and pay attention. It's telling us that God is like a fire, but unlike any other fire we could ever conceive of. Because what does a normal fire need to burn? It needs fuel. Once the fuel is gone, the fire goes out. But here is a fire that is burning the bush without consuming it, without using the fuel that is the bush to burn And so God is like a fire that doesn't need any fuel. And what this means is that God is utterly self-sufficient. God depends on nothing. But everything depends on God. So what this means for God's name is that just like God is like a fire that is unlike any other fire, God's name is going to be a name that is unlike any other name. God's name, when he reveals it, is going to speak to God's total freedom in relationship to his creatures, which is just another way to say that God is, it's going to speak to God's utter sovereignty and grace. God doesn't need anything to be God, and yet God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's, he's chosen to be in relationship with a particular people for the sake of the world. He's chosen to hear the cries of his people in slavery and rescue them. God's total self-sufficiency, God's total freedom, which we usually sort of think of as if you're totally sufficient, you're totally free, it means you don't need anyone else and you're kind of insulated from caring about anyone else. The exact opposite is true for God. God isn't detached, indifferent, aloof. Instead, God in his freedom and his sovereignty chooses to love and care for us. And so this burning bush shows us that God doesn't need us but he wants us. God's love isn't codependent, it's independent. And and we all know what codependent love is like. The kind of love that, that, that smothers. The kind of love that is about fear and anxiety of the person doing the loving rather than really loving and caring about the other person and wanting to see them thrive. That's not the God of the burning bush. This is the God who loves In freedom. A fire unlike any fire, a name unlike any other name, a God unlike any other than we could imagine, totally self sufficient and thus adequate to meet every real need. So that's what the burning bush teaches us about the name of God. And God calls to Moses from the bush, and Moses responds, Here I am. And God says, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is is, is holy ground. And Moses does as instructed, and then God begins his self-introduction like this. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so when God introduces himself, he starts by stating his relationship to Moses' ancestors. These are the great patriarchs in the book of Genesis. This leads us to the next question. What do these ancestors have to teach us about God's name? They teach us about the consistency Of God. In those 400 years that the children of Israel had been in Egypt, God had not forgotten them. He hadn't forgotten the promises that He'd made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises to make them a great nation, promises to give them a homeland, and to bless all the nations of the earth through them. Human beings are fickle, we are forgetful. Our passions, our loyalties, our our affections are constantly shifting we make promises and then and then we break them just as easily we we rsvp yes and then don't show up i hope that doesn't help into you gretchen and eric at your at your wedding you paid for those people so you send them send them a meal even if they don't come pick it up but you know people are going to rsvp yes and they're not going to show up and they're not going to have a good reason and they're not going to tell you we are consistently inconsistent reliably unreliable dependably undependable but God isn't like that. God doesn't change his loyalties. His affections don't waver. His commitments don't falter. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It means that we can always count on God to keep his promises and to be who he says he is. And part of God's cons- consistency in mentioning these ancestors is that God consistently is a God who works with imperfect people to achieve his perfect ends. That's just what God does. That's, that's what we see in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. As one commentator said, God has not changed from what he had been to the patriarchs in those far-off days. He was still the God who calls into the unknown, just like he had called Abraham. The same God who overcomes impossible odds like when Sarah was barren at 90. Like when Isaac was on the altar moments from having his life sacrificed. Still the God who bothers with those who have tried and failed. And certainly in the case of Jacob is the God who can take the unpromising material of our lives and transform it into something glorious. That's another part of God's consistency consistently keeping his promises, consistently keeping his character, and consistently working with fallible human beings. And so, so far we, we've learned that whatever God's name is, it's going to show us that God is utterly free and completely consistent. But now we get to this moment where God actually reveals his name. So God says, I, I'm, I'm the God of your ancestors. I've heard my people's cries. I've seen their affliction. And so I'm sending you, Moses, to set them free so they can come back to this mountain And worship me. And at this point, Moses objects. Who am I that Pharaoh will listen to me and let this people go? And and who am I that even the children of Israel would listen to me? And then he asks the most important question of all. He says, well, if the people say, who sent you? Who sent you to come free? us? Who is this God? What do I tell them? God, what is your name? This is a great question, and it, and it leads to one of the most profound moments of Scripture, where God speaks his own name. And the answer, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, this is one of those verses where you get a footnote in your Bible, and it's going to send you to the bottom of the page to see, because in the history of interpretation and translation, This is probably one of the most studied, discussed, and argued about verses and phrases in the entire Bible. And the various translations give this as, I am who I am, or I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And what's clear is that the name that God gives is all tied up with the Hebrew verb for being or existence. God is the one who is. God is the one who purely exists. God's name relates to God's is-ness. There's a great mystery in this name. No one can quite figure it out, which is fitting, because this is God that we're talking about here. But if we can know anything about God, it's that God is. And we can be sure that this name, this this statement, was just as hard for the ancient Israelites to understand as it is for us today. And when we think of God as pure being, as pure existence, it's sort of, we can conceptualize something without ending. Just keep, you know, extending timeline existence out into the future. We can, can, we can conceive of a forever lasting life, but something that has always existed is very difficult for our minds to grasp. Because everything in our universe began to exist at some point. You can trace it all back to that moment of, of singularity. But what was there before that? Nothing. Well, then we ask, well, well, then where did all the matter come from that was there at the moment of singularity? And so now at least we're, we're touching upon the mystery of one aspect of that name of I am who I am. And God is the one whom cannot be conceived of apart from the attribute of existence. Trying to think of God as beginning or not existing at some point is like trying to think of a circle that's not round or a triangle without three sides. Eternal Infinite existence is intrinsically a part of what it means for God to be God. Now, why does that matter? The fact that it's hard to conceptualize or it hurts our brains to think about should inspire in us even more awe about this God, about how amazing this God is, about how much greater God is than we could ever imagine, and how we can't even compare ourselves or anything in our universe to this God. And yet this God has stooped down and revealed himself to us. But this name also means I will be who I will be. And so God is saying that his name will be defined by what he does. Like Treebeard Treebeard said, real names tell a story and are growing all the time. In God's name, I will be who I will be. His name will then tell the story of redemption. Redemption. The story of God rescuing and freeing his people, not just from Egypt, but from sin. So who is God? What is God's name? What we learn right here in in, in Exodus 3 is what the uh, late great Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen said at the very beginning of his first volume of systematic theology when he's reflecting on this question, who is God, what is God? And he says, for Christians, when we answer this question and we look at the scriptures, our answer is this. God is the one who freed the people of Israel from slavery, slavery in Egypt, and the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The divine name is the divine identity of the God who does this, and we know who God is because God Himself has shown us by what He has done to redeem and save His people, and told us through Scripture. And God is mysterious, but but who God is doesn't remain an ineffable mystery hidden behind a cloud of unknowing. God is the one who frees captives and raises the dead. That's what the name of God means. But speaking of raising the dead, this last question is what does this name have to do with Jesus? What's the relationship between the God we meet in in, in this passage and the God we meet in Jesus Christ? And a key to understanding this comes in, in this figure of the angel of the Lord, In verse two, it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And then in verse four, it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So who is in that bush? The angel of the Lord or the Lord himself? You know, yes, both, right? And so the angel of the Lord is this important, strange figure who shows up in the earliest chapters of Genesis. And this is what um, Alex Motier, who was a great English commentator, says on the angel of the Lord. He says, the angel is the mode of deity whereby the holy God keeps company with sinners. Because usually, you know, if the threat, God's presence in, in, in the Old Testament especially is a terrifying thing. If you get too close to it, it's going to consume you. It's going to destroy you. But when the angel of the Lord shows up, uh, the holy God can keep company with sinners. And he says there's only one other in the Bible who is both identical with and yet distinct from the Lord. One who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of his deity or diminishing the divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a supreme display of his outreach and mercy. Such indeed is the angel of the Lord, and consequently, the angel can be appreciated only when understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Now, I don't know if I'm willing to go that far, but I think we can safely say that the angel of the Lord is a a type that prefigures and, and prepares us to meet Jesus Christ for who he really is, fully God and fully man, identical with yet distinct from the Lord the one who reconciles a holy God with sinful and broken humanity. And this I am name, Jesus even alludes to it in John chapter 8 when he says, before Abraham was, I am. A clear allusion to this passage. And so the good news for us is then when we meet Jesus, we don't just get to know about God and learn about God from some great teacher. We also get to meet and know God for who he is himself. And when we know the God of Exodus 3, and we know the God of Jesus of the Gospels, we know the same God on a first-name basis, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who always will be, God with us and God for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.